Now, as you recall, Peter's in Joppa, staying at the house of one named Simon, who's a tanner. He was up on the rooftop, received a vision from the Lord, fell into a trance, saw this vision. It was around lunchtime, probably smelled the food. He sees this vision of this great white sheep descending out of heaven. And on it, on, on it are all kinds of animals, creeping things, and which has very significant meaning. God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. He says, no, Lord, I will not, and I cannot eat that which is unclean. God says, what I have deemed clean, no man shall call unclean, basically. Peter's pondering the vision, and the Spirit said, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I have sent them. So these men arrive. Verse 21. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But... God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him 
receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's how you preach the gospel right there. It's a perfect pattern in preaching the gospel. So let's pray and we'll take a look at this. Heavenly Father, thank you for my beloved brothers and sisters here this morning. We together, in one accord, Lord, from our hearts, are thankful to you for your sovereign grace and mercy shown to us, granting us the ability to believe by the resident presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the study of it. And we pray that uh, you would increase, Lord, within us a greater knowledge and understanding of you, the Holy One, and, and how you have worked throughout redemptive history and continue to work for your glory in the good of your people, chosen before the foundation of the earth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, now we met Cornelius last time. Um, He's a Gentile centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's a senior officer in the Roman army. Um, He would oversee um, 100 soldiers. Um, And the scripture says he's he's a God-fearer. If you look back at verse 2, It says, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Which means this this was a religious and pious man. He was genuinely religious. And he feared the one true God. In case you've forgotten, there was three kinds of Gentiles in the mind of the Jews of the first century, the first was your everyday run-of-the-mill Gentile, typical pagan. The second were Gentiles that were God-fearers, such as this man. And the third were, were Gentile proselytes who, who actually converted to Judaism and they adhered to the traditions and the festivals and the sign um, of the covenant, which was circumcision. Um, but... This man was not a full proselyte. He was a God-fearer. He feared the one true God. He feared Yahweh and believed him to be the one true God. And uh, the Holy Spirit here now is is about to bring greater and fuller truth to this Cornelius. Um, And while he's in the midst of doing this work, he's also doing a work in Peter the messenger, um, his his apostle. Uh, He's doing a work on both ends. And isn't that not the case? with our Lord to this day. He does a work in his servants, continually, as he's doing a work in those who are his elect, who will become converted in due time. And uh, when the message is meshed in the providence of God to the mind and the heart of the recipient, God has prepared both. And it's an amazing thing to witness and to be part of. So uh, Peter's going to bring the gospel to the senior Roman soldier, two prepared men by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He's going to have to make a major change in the part of Peter, as we know, in order to get him to move in doing this, uh, because this is a major change of attitude in in the life and thinking of one Peter, a Jewish man. Um, So Peter, as we can see, he's beginning to see that God is not a respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of person. When it comes to sin and when it comes to salvation, everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs a savior. Christ is the only one. All men have the same creator. There's only one savior. This he's beginning to see. Uh, This is part of the vision of the sheep coming down from heaven. Which on the surface seems to be about food laws. It seems, seems to be all about food You know, all those kosher laws of the Old Testament recorded back in Leviticus 11. 
and the, the parallel account in Deuteron- Deuteronomy. You know, where Moses is giving the instruction to, to God's people, to Israel, um, on the plains of Moab, just before they cross over the Jordan to enter into the promised land, um, he's providing or giving these um, strict culinary laws. Israel's eating habits, certain animals they're able to eat, that they're free to eat, those that chewed the cud and so on, they were okay. Those, so long as their hooves uh, were split in the middle, you know, coven, a cloven or split hoof, um, and certain birds as well. Those were deemed clean, and there was a description of those that were unclean. And what was the one main animal that we know that was deemed unclean? The pig, right? The hog. We love ham sandwiches. Who does not love a good ham sandwich? <laughs> now, many people have taught over the years that that uh, the reason God introduced, for example, a ban on eating pork and bacon, which is the greatest meat on the planet. <laughs> Isn't it? Everything tastes better with bacon on it. <laughs> they see it was because of hygiene purposes before you know refrigeration and all. I don't believe that really had anything to do with it. I don't think hygiene had anything to do with it. I think it had much more to do simply with the fact of God separating his people from other nations. Separating, for instance, Israel from the Canaanites. From, from all these surrounding um, nations. And what greater force could God use than food? Culturally, does not food separate us? Are you not grossed out if you have ever traveled abroad to, to have to eat or even think about eating certain foods that are viewed as a delicacy to other people and looked at as garbage by us? You know, we, we even have those in our own culture who refuse to eat meat, right? You have vegetarian friends. Maybe you're a vegetarian or vegans and things of that nature. Bless their dear heart. Bless their heart. For a barbecue and meat eater such as myself, they're not the funnest people to eat with, and I'm probably not the funnest people for them to eat with. You know, I've been to a vegan restaurant before. I loved the company, hated the food. (laughs) Some vegans, some vegetarians cry out against eating meat, you know, declaring, I only eat before the fall food, before the fall when we could eat of every tree and so on. Um, and then they try to, uh, that's great, but if they try to press that on the consciences of others, that's when they fall into error. That's when they fall into error. I have no qualms with people who are vegetarians or vegans or whatever for their own sake. I don't really want to go break carrot sticks with them at their their restaurants or whatever, Uh, but I will have them over, and my wife has fixed nice vegetarian dishes for our beloved vegetarian friends. Bless their dear hearts. But to lay that, to lay that imposition on the conscience of others, you know, saying, you know, you should only eat before the full food, um, that you're going to have a problem with that because they're actually then imposing something upon the conscience of Jesus who ate the Passover roast. Roasted lamb. Amen? Let's keep that in mind. And then what's recorded in Scripture is that after Jesus rose from the grave, what did he do with his disciples? He ate fish with them. He ate and drank with them. 
So Peter, a Jew, all that to say, just to draw a little picture here. Here's, here's Peter, this kosher-abiding Jew who's been instructed to go to the home of Cornelius, a Roman soldier, not just a Gentile, but a Roman soldier. They hated Gentiles. They hated imperial Rome and everything it stood for. So you would naturally hate anyone associated with the military. He's ordered by the Lord to travel to this man's home, which would result in eating food together. You get the picture here, amen? Unheard of for any Jew to associate in such a manner with an unclean Gentile to whom they referred to as dogs. As dogs. As I said last time, you know, we're familiar with anti-Semitism in our time, right? People who just, they just hate Jews because people are Jews. But back in this day, the, the, the script was flipped. And Peter and, and other Jews, the majority of Israel, um, couldn't stand Gentiles. So here now, Peter's received this vision, and he's understanding that this vision of food has much more to do with has much more to do um, with people than it does food. And we see that in verse 28. Notice, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Notice what he said. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Okay, he uses food and the vision as a representation of, of, of deeming people is clean, and they can only be clean one way, and it's by the, the, the shrouded white sheet of righteousness um, given to us by God himself through Christ. So Peter is beginning to see himself as one who is unclean. See this? This is amazing. He sees himself as one of those creeping things on the sheet, in just as much need for grace as a Gentile. Both are pronounced unclean. And both can only be pronounced as clean by the sheer grace of God alone. Okay, that's the gospel, amen? That's the gospel. So the separation now has become unification by way of the work and worth of Jesus Christ. And this is the message that is to go out to the utter ends of the earth. So think about it to a Jew to take the gospel to the utter ends of the earth is to go preach to Gentiles. And that's what we've been seeing take place in Acts. So Peter himself is just starting to realize the mystery that's been revealed, which Paul will provide more clarity of, like in in his epistles later on. In Ephesians 2, for instance, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Both need the gospel. Those who were near were Israel. Those who were far off were Gentiles. They now, through Christ, have become one. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
just that text alone absolutely destroys a two-covenant theology that, that God saves people through faith in Christ, but, you know, Jews are going to get in because they're Jews. That's a bunch of nonsense. Amen? So, here now, in, back in the account, Peter and his entourage um, set out north along the coastal road of Caesarea, a group made up of ten. You have three from Cornelius' house, right? One of his soldiers and two of his servants. You have Peter, and then you have six brothers in the Lord that travel together. And it's not in this account. We learn that there were six when we get to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 12, tells us that there were six. So there's ten altogether. And then notice verse 23. So the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So imagine all this anticipation. Cornelius had a vision a few days prior from an angel, a message. He sends his servant and a soldier. So they're waiting. They're just waiting. So here they see him coming down the road. Imagine, calls together his relatives and friends. And then verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Now notice here the humility of Cornelius. Now, in this matter of of bowing down to him, It's totally understandable. Totally. But totally inappropriate. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Understandable, but inappropriate. Uh, We would have probably done the exact same thing. Okay, you're a Gentile. All you know is Yahweh about this one true God. You don't know the covenant relationship. You don't understand, you know, that only he is to be bowed down to. Um, Imagine, though, Cornelius having heard about Peter raising Dorcas from the dead. So this brother walks into the house, and on your face you go. Okay, you know no better at this time. We'd have done the same thing. But every time we see this kind of thing happen in Scripture, it happened to Paul, here it happened to Peter, it happened to angels, which is even more understandable because about their, their radiant, the, the, the glory of, of God reflecting off of them. It, it would be frightening. And there's one place to go on your face. But in every account, guys like Peter and Paul said, don't do that, I like you am a man. And even the angels in in the revelation of Jesus Christ said, don't do that. Get up. So he says here, stand up, I too am a man. But you know the only person we see in scripture who actually receives worship is Jesus. He never says, don't do that. Everyone who bowed down at the feet of Jesus to worship him, whether it was Peter or Thomas who doubted, and and, and he says, Thomas, look, my hands, my side, and he said, my Lord and my God. 
Jesus did not say, don't call me Lord and God. He received the worship because he is Lord and God. So this is understandable, but it's always to be corrected. Amen? So Jesus is rightly to be worshipped because he's God incarnate. Whether in heaven or whether when he was on earth, he received worship because worship was due to him. So, when I was sent for, Peter says, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? Cornelius said, verse 30, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, ask for Simon who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Recognizing him as a messenger. A messenger. So in addition to all these happenings, Peter knows that there's no true faith apart from the what? The word. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the words of Christ. So when he arrives at Cornelius' house, he begins to preach. Notice, he arrives and then, next verse 34, he opened his mouth. And said. So opening mouth means he's about ready to preach. He's about ready to preach the good news, verse 36. Good news. The word is euangelion. It literally means good news. Translated gospel. Gospel, which means good news. You know, people often say, hey, I shared the gospel. Or I'm going to share the gospel. And they proceed to tell how God you know, changed my life. You know, they talk about God changed my life, radically opened my eyes. They'll say, he changed my life, Jesus loves you, he has a plan for your life. But that's not the gospel. That's a result of the gospel. But that's not the gospel. Because the content of the gospel, the content of the glorious gospel, it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you. We are recipients of the gospel. And that makes the, the, the entire uh, focus on the person and work, the work and the worth, that is, of Jesus. The gospel. Now, it's interesting that, that Peter obviously assumes that this man and, and his family um, know about Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. They know something of the things that happened to Jesus. He understands here that they understand something about the historical facts of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ who's Lord of all. In verse 32, he says, Truly I understand God shows no partiality. Yeah, that's a statement about the essence of God's nature. In other words, God is impartial. He is no respecter of persons, He has no favorites. He, he doesn't favor people who accomplish certain things on this big blue marble, amen? So that means that God initially judges everyone the same without respect for what they do or who they are down here. 
So the whole world is unbelievers. John 3.18 is already what? Condemned. Equally condemned for not believing in the one and only Son of God. The unique Son of God. Has nothing to do with social or economic status. Nothing qualifies a person in and of himself or herself. And that's what we're reminded of in 1 Peter 1.16. God says, you shall be holy for I am what? Holy. holy. The standard is utter, absolute holiness. That's the standard. You want to go to heaven when you die? Then you have to be perfectly holy your whole, from the womb to the tomb. Sinless. The problem is, because of our innate nature, our, 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 our innate depravity, no one meets the standard. That's the bad news. That's why there's good news. Amen? Amen? Can't understand the good news unless you understand the bad. So in verse 17, Peter says, He judges impartially according to each man's work. Your work has failed because God, His demand is utter perfection. Your work must be perfect. Your life, your thoughts, inward thoughts, outward deeds, everything must be perfect, flawless, sinless. And you fail. So therefore, no sinner can escape that judgment. No sinner can escape the justice of God. And they'll never stand because of any privilege, any achievement, or any accomplishment in this life. Colossians 3.25 says this, He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So the playing field is level. The standard's the same. Therefore, entry is the same. There's a door, and it's very narrow. There's a gate. It's a turnstile, if you will, where one person goes in at a time. There's no room for extra baggage to be brought in. Amen? It's not the turnstile plus some junk I got in my bag that my philosophies of what I think God is like and all this nonsense. The, the, the way is straight, the way is narrow, the road is difficult, Jesus said. But there's another way too. There's two ways in an attempt to get to God. One broad and one narrow, amen? Very few are on the narrow way. Numerous people are on the broad way. And that broad way leads to one place. They think it leads to God, but it leads to hell, destruction. The narrow gate, the narrow way, the difficult way, that turnstile where one comes in one at a time by faith and trust solely in the work and worth of Christ is very narrow. And it's only in Him that one is accepted. That's it. So the Bible's clear. All have sinned. All have fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And then the big but. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. No one Romans 3, no one understand, no one does right, amen? There's no one good, no not one. Peter's starting to understand he's part of the group. Amen? A Jew. He was no boy, I think he was a little older than like John, who was probably young, 17, 18, whatever he was, 19, 20. It seems that way anyhow. He realizes, man, we are all, we all have the same problem. 
And there's only one solution to the problem. And it's the one I've just opened my mouth to proclaim. It's Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah of Israel. And anyone who wants to be an Israelite must be in true Israel. It's Jesus, amen? Amen. He is the vine. He is the temple. He is the true Jew. He is true Israel. So if you want to be a true Jew, you have to be in the true Jew. It's Jesus Christ. So you all are really true Jews. Compared to... Not to cut anyone down, but this is a Jewish school next door. You have rabbis, you have yarmulkes, you have tassels. All that represents stuff. They're not true Jews. Not all Israel is true Israel. You have to be in the true Israelite, Jesus Christ. So, here an ethnic Jew brings the only salvific message to this Gentile soldier. And he opens his mouth and he preaches. Verse 35. Actually, verse 34. I understand God shows no partiality. Verse 35. But in every nation, notice, every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him, as for the word that he sent to Israel, right, Preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. In every nation, anyone who fears him. In other words, the gospel wasn't just for the Jews. That's what John 3.16 means. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That has nothing to do with, with universal atonement, by the way. Amen? Let me get a hear an amen on that amen. one. <laughs> God so loved the world, not without exception, but without distinction. The gospel wasn't just for the Jews. It was the promise that goes back to Abraham. Through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we're seeing the full manifestation of it right here. So, this is not, John 3.60 scene doesn't mean that he's going to save everyone without exception. He, he came to lay his life down for his, John 10, his sheep. Right? And it's not when people are unbelievers, they're goats. Right? Those who are elect of God that, that are unbelievers are sheep who are lost. Thus the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd goes out and gets his lost sheep and brings them into the fold. He leaves the 99 to get the one because the 99 are already safe. They're in. So he goes to get the lost one because it is a sheep. And he brings it into the fold. He doesn't turn goats into sheep. Amen? It's just at the end of the age, he separates the goat from the sheep. Those who are trying to masquerade as sheep, he separates them because he knows the hearts of everyone and he knows whether they're his or not. I know my sheep, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. This Gentile Roman centurion is one of the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great shepherd has sent an under-shepherd, Peter, to go get him. What's he get him with? The gospel. The gospel. Verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, 
from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Notice, and this is why I said they knew something of historic Jesus, verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. You already know this. What happened at Jesus' baptism was that the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Amen? John's preaching, repent. He's preaching to Israel, repent and be baptized. Prepare yourself for the one who has been foretold of and is coming. So Jesus comes down to John. John goes, Lord, far be it for me to baptize you. Jesus said, the law must be fulfilled. You will baptize me. And he's baptized. And as he's baptized, he comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends out of heaven upon him. The Father speaks. There you have the Trinity. God the Father speaking, the Holy Spirit descending, and Jesus, incarnate Son of God, standing there in the water. Trinity. Present. And then he's driven out by the Spirit into the desert, and then his entire ministry, he, the second person of the Godhead, is led by the third person of the Godhead for the glory of the first person of the Godhead. In perfect obedience. So his ministerial work then began. It wasn't carried out in a corner, amen? His ministry was carried out and fulfilled perfectly, openly. So, Luke, I don't know what this sermon was really like, but Luke is no doubt just providing the highlights of this preaching here. The high points of Peter's sermon, probably. He's probably not recording every single word. So, he he proceeds to recount the mighty works of Jesus for which these Roman soldiers, these Roman Gentiles, no doubt had heard about. He continues on, providing a great sample of evangelism here for us. And he calls attention to the mighty deeds that validate the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what the signs were for, to validate his sonship. The fact that he performed signs, miracles, and wonders. Very unique to the ministry of the Messiah. And then those gifts, certain gifts were distributed to the apostles also to validate their, their, their mission and their role, their apostolic role. And then after three and a half years of public ministry, verse 39, they put him to death by hanging him on the tree. So in preaching the gospel, we have to talk about the worth of Christ as the only begotten Son of God who carried out a perfect, flawless ministry upholding the law of God. It's the life of Christ. It's the work of Christ. And then in preaching the gospel, we have to get to the death of Christ, the perfect sacrifice. There's no way to preach the good news without getting to the death of Jesus. There's no way to proclaim freedom in Christ by bypassing the bloody cross of Christ which so many try to do today. Because, you know, it seems barbaric. A bloody cross is so barbaric. It's so ancient. Well, you're not part of the church, madam. If you think, you better straighten your thinking out quick, Lee. Amen? His death was required. So there you have his life. There you have his ministry. Peter's Peter's preaching it. He speaks of his death, rightly regarded. You can't mention Jesus without 
and, and the salvific grace that he offers with, with, without talking about the blood of the cross. His literal death. He had to die. But his death wasn't enough to save you. Amen? Right. It wasn't enough to save you. He had to live perfectly for you first. Uphold the law God requires. That's the standard. And then he had to lay his life down because there had to be punishment for your sin. For my sin. That's why he said, no man takes my life, I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to raise it up again. Why? Because I'm God, that's why. (laughs) Basically. So he preaches it all. And then the atoning death, it's the life and the death in our place that provides our peace with God. Right? When one places their faith and trust in God, the enmity is removed. So he provides for us propitiation. What's that word mean again? Satisfaction. What's satisfied? The wrath of God is satisfied through the death of Christ. The wrath has been satisfied. That's propitiation, which provides expiation, the removal of your sins as far as the east is from the west. And it's interesting that it happens to be in the shape of a cross. Propitiation, expiation. God's wrath is satisfied, and because your sins are atoned for, he removes your sin. You are now declared righteous. It's a legal declaration by the atoning work and worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because his blood was holy and sinless, and he had to die. People ask, if Jesus just pricked his finger in just a drop of blood, could he have atoned for my sins because his blood was sinless and holy? Answer is no. A a drop wouldn't do it. Why? Because life is in the blood, and his life had to be given. Therefore, his blood had to be shed, laying down his life. And a prick in the finger wouldn't do it. Right? Jesus died in our place, providing peace with God. That's the good news. That's the good news. We now have, as Christians, peace with God. And because we have the peace with God, we have the Holy Spirit, which provides us the peace of God. The peace of God. And that's why we're commanded in a lot of things because we have the Spirit, do not be anxious. Right? Do not be anxious, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God, and then the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Peace with and peace of. Colossians 2.13 says, Having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Punished for us in order to atone for us, to make payment for us. And who was the payment that was given due to? It wasn't the devil. Payment was made to God the Father. On our behalf. The only part Satan plays in any of it is that he was defeated through it. That's it. (laughs) Defeated through the cross. 
He provides us reconciliation through the cross, adoption through the cross, sonship through the cross, justification through the cross, sanctification through the cross, the promise of glorification by way of the cross. It's all by way of the cross, preceded by his perfect holy life. This is what the brother's preaching. Perfect life, perfect death, those two as well would not be enough. Did you know that his life and death weren't enough to save you? You're like, what? He had to raise from the dead. The ministry of Jesus, the worth of Jesus as the Son of God and his death in our place could only be validated by a resurrection. Verse 40. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. There you have, you want to talk about food laws? He ate again. And we'll be eating too. And you won't be getting fat when you do. I don't have a beer belly to deal with. It's not even from beer, it's just from food. So Peter testifies, he ate and drank with us, we saw him, we touched him, he spoke to us. He had a real resurrected body. And then he instructed us to go tell. Amen? Amen. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach. To preach to the people and to testify that he's the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, notice this, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Forgiveness only comes by way of the one who provided propitiation through which provides expiation, the forgiveness of sins. Faith and trust in him alone. And who's it for? Verse 43, everyone who believes in him. For forgiveness of sins through his, na- through his name. Jew and Gentile alike, that's the point. That's his point. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. A Jew has to just as much believe, Peter is saying, in essence, a Jew just as much has to believe as a, as a Gentile who were, who were far away. Those who were close, who had the oracles of God, the traditions, they had the law, they had it all, they were close. But if they don't believe, they are as far, if not farther away, than a Gentile. And that much more accountable for what they know. So in a few short verses here, we have a wonderful power of example of uh, gospel proclamation. Amen? So preaching any other gospel is to not preach the gospel. Is to not preach the gospel. Okay, Peter's not even finished preaching yet. Notice what happens. We're, We're done. We have one minute. He's not even finished with his sermon. And notice the Holy Spirit descends. And notice, he's not, he, he's not one of these TV preacher guys, you know, who, who's dependent upon flashy stories and all this nonsense. Amen? 
while Peter, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who, what? Heard the word. And believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter, they were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Okay, this is like a mini little uh, 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 um, Pentecost, isn't it? Only with Gentiles this time. They start speaking in foreign languages that they did not speak. So Peter declared, verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to remain for some days. It's the gospel, isn't it? Amen? Without which, we may as well go home, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you will die. Go live like everybody else. Have your neat little house, with your neat little yard, and your neat little cars, and your neat little job, and go to work, and come home, and shut the garage, and watch TV. The weekend's coming. We work for the weekend, just like they did in the 80s with that song. Everybody's working for the weekend. We party on the weekend, we go back to work, and we do it over and over again. Eat, drink, and be as happy as you can, because tomorrow you're going to die. Woo-hoo! And without the gospel, that's all life is. Amen? He's made two one in Christ. Jew and Gentile, one. Through one message, one person. One way to be saved, the gospel. Amen, brothers and sisters. Lord, we do thank you for our time together this morning. Pray it would be beneficial for for all, edifying to all, for the glory of you alone. We pray for service this morning, that uh, you'll impart to me the ability to lead and to proclaim the truth, and your people to come with hearts ready and wanting to hear and to rejoice in the promises provided through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.